The following commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241, or you can email radio at bnntv.org. Hello, welcome to Life Matters. I'm your host, Brendan O'Connell. We have a very special guest today. He, he's a Pittsburgh native. I think he went to Pittsburgh, the August School, Pittsburgh uh, Catholic High School. Central so, Catholic, alma mater of Dan Marino. I see, very well. And then he went to other uh, institutions. Uh, uh, Yale, was it? Or? Uh, went to Dartmouth. Oh, Dartmouth College, that's right. Yeah, he's an Ivy Leaguer. And, and then on to Stanford, where he got a PhD yeah, in political science and, and uh, got a master's in statistics. And then he came back here and was involved with um, Harvard and MIT, teaching a, a class there, a collaborative. And, and he also taught at UMass Boston. But now he's in Washington, D.C. and at Catholic University. And he's also an associate scholar of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Well, welcome, Dr. Michael New. Yeah, Brendan, thanks for having me. Uh, um, Michael, um, uh, the day before, the evening, I think, before Thanksgiving, a Wednesday, uh, the Biden administration put out statistics, uh, abortion statistics. Could you tell us about those statistics? And was there anything that was uh, of interest that uh, we should know about in the pro-life community? Well, I think abortion statistics are very interesting, and I think what was released uh, is very important and worth discussing. Uh, so sure, the CDC uh, releases abortion data about once a year. They have this very odd habit of releasing abortion data the Wednesday afternoon before Thanksgiving. Not just the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, Wednesday afternoon. So <laughs> I cannot think of a worse time to release data or information that might be of interest to people on the Wednesday afternoon before Thanksgiving. People right. are thinking about traveling, they're thinking about Thanksgiving turkey, they're thinking about the football games, they're probably not thinking much about abortion data. But that's what the CDC went ahead and released data. And uh, I'll just be perfectly honest, uh, the news is not good for pro-lifers. For a long time, uh, we've seen a consistent decline uh, in the number of abortions performed, but this new data shows a slight increase. Uh, we saw an abortion increase of a little more than 1% in 2019. And what's troubling is that this is the second year in a row where the number of abortions have increased. So we've seen a very long-term decline, but that downward trend is starting to reverse itself. And we see abortion numbers creeping up slightly. And I think that should concern pro-lifers. Uh, a couple of things are worth noting. A big reason why abortion numbers are increasing is because there's been a big increase in chemical abortions. Uh, from the second year in a row, we saw a double-digit percentage increase in the number of chemical abortions. I think chemical oh. abortions went up by about 12%. Uh, chemical abortions are now about 44% of all abortions. So that's very concerning. You know, obviously chemical abortions are failed on board children, but they're also risky to women as well. Uh, if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, 
and she has a chemical abortion, that can be fatal. If she's farther along in gestation than she realizes, and she has a chemical abortion, that could pose some various health risks. Mm -hmm. So that's something that was concerning. Another thing that we also saw uh, was the impact of public policy. Uh, back in 2017, uh, Illinois changed their policy, and now they fund abortion through their state Medicaid programs. So that means women on Medicaid can have their abortions paid for. That started in 2018. Uh, 2019 was the second year in a row where number of abortions in Illinois went up by more than 9%. So they start paying for abortions with taxpayer dollars, abortions go up. But on the good side, uh, West Virginia uh, excluded abortion from their state Medicaid programs. Now women uh, on Medicaid in West Virginia, if they want an abortion, uh, they have to pay out of pocket. Abortions went down by about 20% in West Virginia. So wow. policy matters. You fund abortion, numbers goes up like Illinois. You defund abortion like West Virginia, numbers go down. So a lot to chew on. Yeah, and what uh, I just read a statistic that um, uh, women that take have chemical abortions, and the abortion industry likes to call it a medication abortion. Um, maybe you can explain what exactly it is, what kind of a pill. But I I read that uh, that the it's four times more dangerous a chemical abortion than a surgical abortion. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. That uh, there is some very good research out there on the risk of chemical abortion. There is one study done in Finland. Um, there was another study done in California. And Finland you know, has like a registry of people who've undergone chemical abortions. California, they used a data set of women in California on the state Medicaid program. So these data sets are very comprehensive. It wasn't you know, cherry picked. It wasn't anecdotal. Uh, it was very, very detailed. And both studies had very similar findings that women who had chemical abortions, the complication rate was four times higher with chemical abortions than with surgical abortions. And what's even worse is that not only are chemical abortions risky, but supports of legal abortion are really pushing to allow women to obtain these chemical abortion drugs unsupervised. They want to issue them through the mail or they want to do them through telehealth, where a woman will interact with a physician through Zoom or through a computer and the physician will make a decision to administer the chemical abortion pills remotely. And again, I think that having women obtain chemical abortions without an in-person medical exam, again, that's risky. Again, if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, it can be fatal. Uh, if she's far along gestation than she realizes, uh, again, there can be very serious health consequences there. Mm -hmm. And uh, just exactly for our, our viewers and listeners, how does one uh, that is a telemed abortion. How does that work? Say, is it say there's a uh, hundred miles between where the doctor is and where the uh, quote unquote patient is? Uh, what what does the doctor do? How does he get the pills to this lady? What what goes on there? Well, my understanding is the doctor interacts with the woman through Zoom or some other online interface, and the woman's in some kind of a, a private room. And uh, if the doctor prescribes the abortion pill, which I imagine in most cases would happen, like a door opens up or like a drawer opens up and the pill is dispensed by some kind of machine. You know, there's mm -hmm. a, a, you know, a drawer unlocks or opens up or somehow there's a machine that would uh, dispense the pill. And, uh, you know, typically the woman would take one pill, you know, and the doctor would watch her do that through the interface. And then she'd get another pill that she would take at home hours later. So uh, there'd be just some kind of a mechanism to get the pill to the woman uh, while she's interfacing with this doctor remotely. Mm -hmm. So now you've said that uh, 
chemical abortions have gone up to what percent? And then uh, is it more profitable for the abortion industry to do chemical abortions than surgical abortions? Um, I would say chemical abortions are about 44% of all abortions. They've been going up pretty dramatically. The, you know, uh, the RE46 abortion drug was approved by the FDA in 2000. And at first, you know, a very high percentage of abortions were so surgical, you know, relatively few women seeking abortions, opted for chemical abortions, they become more and more profitable. Um, I think in general for abortion facilities, they tend to charge more for a surgical abortion than for a chemical abortion. But with a chemical abortion, you know, it's, uh, it requires uh, less cost to the abortion facility. Again, they can, you know, they have options now where they can administer these pills remotely and doctors have, don't have to be present. So that is a way for abortion facilities to make money, you know, that they don't have to have a uh, physician or an abortion doctor, you know, physically present. Uh, they can administer abortions or offer abortions uh, to women who can't be there in person. So the fact that it allows more and more women to obtain abortions, that makes it profitable for the abortion industry. I see. And is that the prime reason you think the abortion rate went up? Uh, I think that had a lot to do with it. I mean, we saw the overall numbers went up by a little more than 1%, but chemical abortions went up by about 12%. So I think that, you know, the fact that chemical abortions are more available mm -hmm. and that women, you know, I think certainly played a big role. I also think there were some changes in public policy that in some states played a role. Uh, again, Illinois start covering abortion through the state Medicaid program. Yep. Uh, you saw a number of abortions go up by 9% both 2018 and 2019. Some other states have made their abortion laws more permissive. Uh, Virginia did away with their informed consent law, their waiting period. I think that was in 2020 or so. So we'll wait to see data from there. Massachusetts has passed, I guess, in 2020. We get their pro-life, parental involvement law. So uh, we'll probably see abortion numbers amongst Massachusetts minors go up. So some policy changes, but I think the overall increase, I think, was driven by more chemical abortions. Uh-huh. Now, I'd like to switch topics and talk about um, uh, the Dobbs case. Uh, there were oral arguments on December 1st, 2021, um, heard on this case. Can you tell us a little bit about it, and what was it like being there? You, you're in Washington, D.C. Were you up, uh, up by the Supreme Court uh, while the case was being heard? Yep, I was there. I mean, some background on the Dobbs case, uh, for those of you who are familiar, I mean, back, I think, in 2018, uh, Mississippi governor signed a bill that would protect pre-born children after 15 weeks gestation. Uh, like most pro-life laws, uh, was challenged in court. It's not currently in effect, but it was appealed. It was appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed to hear oral arguments on this bill, and those oral arguments took place on December 1st. And this is a very important case of the pro-life movement for a variety of reasons. First off, this is the first time since Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court has really considered, can we protect pre-born children after a certain stage of gestation? Uh, Supreme Court's looked at other issues pertaining to abortion. They've looked at taxpayer funding. They've looked at pro-life parental involvement laws. They've looked at different kinds of abortion procedures. They've looked at abortion facility regulations. But they've yet to look at this very fundamental question. Can we protect pre-born children after a certain stage of gestation. So it's important for that reason. It's also important because the composition of the court has changed. Uh, President Trump was able to appoint three Supreme Court justices. He appointed Neil Gorsuch, he appointed Brett Kavanaugh, and he appointed Amy Coney Barrett. And again, we don't know how the rule on this case or any other case, but uh, President Trump is pro-life. 
I think he won judges that were pro-life and abortion skeptical and skeptical of Roe v. Wade. So if you add those three judges to uh, the ones who are already on the court, Clarence Thomas, whose role, role, role that Roe has long decided, and Samuel Alito, who often votes in favor of pro-life laws, that can give you five judges right there who might be willing to overturn Roe v. Wade. So uh, it's important for, for those reasons. Uh, I was at the court. Uh, it was a great day. Did, uh, I think everything went about as well as it could have gone. Did they have it was audio? The first time, I'm sorry. Did they have audio so you that were outside the court you could hear the oral arguments yourself being? We outside. got to hear some of the oral arguments. I'll just say it was the first time I've been I've been doing pro life work since the 90s, and I've been to the Supreme Court for different rallies and demonstrations and events. It was the first time I can honestly say pro lifers outnumbered our opponents. We had more people there than they did. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to Students Life of America. Uh, they had a group of students actually there overnight to make sure that we had a spot to do the rally. I also want to shout out uh, Liberty University. They had a busload of students come. So we had quite a lot of pro-life people in front of the court praying, and we had a rally. Uh, and it was most of the speakers there were women. I thought the optics of that were good. At a certain point, we stopped the rally and got to hear oral arguments. We got to hear the uh, Solicitor General of Mississippi uh, make the case defending the pro-life law. So we got to hear part of the oral arguments but they did cut off the oral arguments to go back to the rally. So those of us outside the court could hear part of the argument, but we couldn't hear the whole thing. I see. Now, the, the Solicitor General for Mississippi, uh, I understand that he was a clerk for Clarence Thomas. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. He clerked for Clarence Thomas. Uh, he's someone who's you know, good credentials. He went to Stanford Law School. Uh, you know, he spoke at a dinner that night that was hosted by uh, Alliance Defending Freedom. Um, again, it seemed that he had a good grasp of the issue, was able to answer the questions posed to him well. Uh, again, I think yeah, the fact that he was arguing in front of a, uh, someone he used to work for, uh, so that was an interesting experience for him. But yes, I think the Mississippi Solicitor General, the whole legal team, uh, did a fine job. They did. And um, what about the issue of uh, viability? Wasn't that uh, in Casey versus uh, Planned Parenthood of Eastern Pennsylvania? Was that, the, uh, well, the, was that the case? Viability threshold was actually a bigger part of Roe v. Wade. Oh, it you is. Know, they said that states could do more as far as protecting preborn children post-viability. But the problem with that was that any post-viability protection had to have kind of a health exemption. And the way those health exemptions work is they're very broad. And effectively, uh, if you can say, get a doctor to say that, you know, uh, this pregnancy poses some risk to the woman's health, even if that risk is not well-founded and well-documented, that can justify an abortion. So uh, what Casey did that was different than Roe is a common ban the trimester system and said that states can limit or regulate abortion as long as that limit or regulation doesn't pose an undue burden oh, to women seeking abortion. So mm -hmm. there are things we could do after Casey we couldn't easily do beforehand. Informed consent laws were constitutional. We could pass laws that would give women seeking abortions information. And that information can be about health risks, about public and private sources of support, about field development, and we can do waiting periods. So the standard relationship from the trimesters to undue burden, and we're hoping that uh, you know they just abandon undue burden and let states go ahead and protect preborn children and overturn Roe v. Wade. Do you think it'll be an all or nothing, or have you handicapped what you might think would be the uh, decision? Uh, would it be? I know that uh, the Chief Justice Roberts tends to parse decisions, which we think are important. Um, do you, do you think it, there'll be an all or nothing or something in between or what? Any any prognostications? I guess this is kind of like football when we 
you know, they ask you to pick who you think is going to win. What, what, uh, what do you think is going to come down? I'll say this. Based on what I've heard, uh, it seemed that I was very interested in Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. I think that Alito, Thomas, and probably Amy Coney Barrett are pretty reliable votes to overturn Roe v. Wade. I was interested in Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And based on their questions, I think they're very road skeptical. I mean, Kavanaugh kept saying the Constitution is scrupulously neutral on abortion, and he's right. Uh, the Constitution makes no mention of this uh, issue whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So I thought that to be a good sign. Roberts, his questioning was trying to, I hate to use his analogy, but split the baby. I think he was trying to find some reason to uphold the Mississippi law, but keep Roe v. Wade more or less intact. Now, the good thing for pro-lifers is we don't need Roberts' vote. There are potentially five judges, even without John Roberts, that might vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, Thomas, and Alito. The thing is, is that, you know, as a chief justice, John Roberts is going to probably try to persuade one of those five judges to potentially vote with him. He may try to get one judge uh, to side with him and say, okay, we'll let the Mississippi law stand, but Roe v. Wade is still going to be intact. So Roberts may try to, you know, use his, some influence, some leverage to try to get one of the judges to vote with him. So we just need to pray, we need to be diligent. I mean, to some extent it's out of our hands. We just need to be prayerful, be faithful, and we'll probably get some news in June. Mm -hmm. Well, it, uh, so we outnumbered them. Do you know what the ratio was uh, there? On, uh, I know that uh, Father Frank Pavone was preparing for uh, this, uh, you know, being at the steps of the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, any idea of uh, whether we outnumbered them uh, two to one or three to one or four to one? Or I'd say two to one's fair. It's kind of hard to say when you're in a big crowd. I mean, I was through two competing rallies. I wasn't really paying that much attention to our opponents. I mean, I was doing some media. I was, you know, there to support some friends of mine who were there. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't really focusing in or doing a head count. But I think a uh, two to one is fair with with our side uh, having twice as many as theirs. Mm -hmm. Any uh, do. Uh, so there's, there's great hope then, hopefully, that there'll be a decision that will uh, uh, maybe overturn Roe v. Wade. Do you, th would, do you think that Dov E. Bolton would be, you know, that was the same day companion case as uh, Roe v. Wade. Do you think Doe v. Doe v. Bolton would be overturned or um, eliminated if the court uh, votes pro-life? Yeah, I mean, Dovey Bolton kind of dealt with kind of the health regulations and unfortunately defined health in such a broad way that we really can't do much to protect pre-born children. I think that both Roe and Doe are you know, potentially on the chopping block. I, I don't think that they're going to pick and choose. I think if they strike down Roe, uh, my opinion is they'll strike down Doe v. Bolton as well. I see. Very interesting. Well, now we have states like Massachusetts that uh, extended their legislative session last year. Uh, to pass the infanticide bill. And uh, while our governor objected to something, he didn't string it out long enough because he is pro-abortion. Uh, Charlie Baker, the Republican, he's decided not to run uh, this time around. Uh, w what can we do uh, as pro-lifers to try to, uh, to stem the tide <laughs> of the pro-abortion uh, I'll call it uh, legislative juggernaut, say, in Massachusetts. Well, it's tough. I mean, I would say I appreciate what you and other pro-lifers do in blue states. It's not easy. 
and the Democratic Party has become a lot more radical on this issue. Uh, at one point, they were willing to let pro-life laws stand. Now they're trying to repeal pro-life laws. They did weaken the pro-life parental involvement law in Massachusetts. Massachusetts was, the, was one of the first states, actually, to have a good pro-life parental involvement law in place. It took effect in 1981. It's protect thousands of unborn children and thousands of minor girls, and it's weakened. Uh, now, essentially, girls who are 16, 17 years old, they can get abortions uh, without involving their parents. So it's not easy. I mean, you know, definitely if we can identify certain pro-life Democrats, we can trust they're worthy of our support. Uh, even some Republicans, even if they are completely pro-life, even if they are with us on some of the incremental things, you know, that might be worth, you know, looking into, uh, finding some, you know, people we can elect. But I think in blue states, I think a lot of it has to be educational. I think that, that uh, no matter what, I, one thing I always tell people is no matter where you are, you can always build a culture of life. Uh, even if politically it's hard to do much of anything, you know, we can all pray. One thing I always recommend is sidewalk counseling. You know, I help organize a team of prayer warriors and sidewalk counselors outside the D.C. Planned Parenthood. I think really there's no better way to build a culture of life than being there when the abortions are happening. So I think that's something you know people can do in blue states. We can support our pregnancy help centers. You know, there's all kinds of great organizations helping pregnant women that are pro-life. You know, I think we can support them financially. We can advertise what they do. And we can just educate our friends and our peers. It's not going to be easy. Uh, you know, Massachusetts and a lot of other blue states have a lot of people who support legal abortion. But no matter where you are, what you're doing, you can always build a culture of life. Mm -hmm. I see. And uh, is there any other optimistic things happening in the pro-life world nationally or internationally that you see out there? Um, I think there's always reason for optimism. You know, I think that uh, certainly we hope to get a good outcome on this Supreme Court case. And if that certainly happens, we can protect unborn children. And I think many states will be very eager to go ahead and pass very strong laws and uh, protect the pre-born. Uh, I'm always heartened by young people. I see a lot more interest and enthusiasm on pro-life issues today than when I was in college. I have a joke that in the mid-1990s, if you were a college student and you were pro-life, that was just really weird. Uh, it was just a very odd position for somebody to have. Even in conservative circles, there were a lot of Republicans who support legal abortion. That's really not the case anymore. Most you know, Republican students these days uh, are pro-life. So I think that there is a lot of reason for optimism uh, among young people. Uh, I think a lot of our outreach efforts are very good. 40 Days for Life does a great job getting people to pray in front of abortion facilities. I think that's been a great thing. Mm -hmm. The Silent No More campaign does a great job recruiting and encouraging testimony from women who've had abortion. I think post-abortive women are some of our most powerful spokespeople. I think that's very powerful. That's Feminists for Life is doing a good job trying to make college campuses more mm -hmm. accommodating to students who are pregnant and students who are parenting. That's a good development. So I see lots of reasons for optimism in the future. Oh, that's great. I wanted to ask you about uh, Virginia and, and their pro-life situation. They've had a Democrat governor and a Democrat legislature, uh, but that has been upset recently. Did they, when they had the Democrat governor and legislature, did they pass a lot of abortion laws? Unfortunately, yeah, when Virginia, you know, when control of Virginia legislature flipped, they uh, really did a lot to repeal things that pro-lifers had passed. They took away the waiting period. They took away the informed consent law. And you know, those laws are incremental, but they do, they do save some lives. You know, you do give women an alternative, they take the alternative. You make women reflect on the decision, you know, some percentage won't go through with it. So they did, unfortunately, a lot to, uh, you know, undermine some good work that Virginia pro-lifers had done previously. Mm -hmm. And what about the incoming uh, governor and the incoming AG and uh, 
I think the lieutenant governor. What are, are they pro-life or? Yep, Glenn Youngkin is pro-life, and it's interesting. People who voted on the abortion issue, uh, you know, were more likely to vote for Youngkin than his opponent, Terry McAuliffe. So even in a bluish state like Virginia, being pro-life is advantageous. I mean, uh, amongst again voters who said abortion is important, they were a lot more likely to vote for Youngkin, the Republican, the pro-life Republican, than McAuliffe, the quote-unquote pro-choice Democrat. So we'll see what he does. Uh, he has a lot on his plate that uh, abortion wasn't necessarily the most important issue in the campaign. Voters are concerned about, you know, the pandemic, you know, the mandates, the school closures, critical race theory. But I think Duncan will be a good, solid pro-life voice in Richmond. And you know, I think there's a chance that we can get some of these pro-life laws back in place. Oh, very good. Well, Dr. New, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate you taking time out of a very busy schedule, particularly the end of a semester when you're giving exams and grading papers. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad to do it. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed my time in Massachusetts, and I was going to be back doing the show in person, but happy to be a guest whenever you need me. So well, thank enjoy you being so, on here. Thank you so much. And, folks, we hope you found today's show to be unique, informative, content-rich, truthful, and thought-provoking. Thanks for watching. I'm Brendan O'Connell, your friend for life. Proceeding commentary does not reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to the Boston Neighborhood Network at 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Mass. 02119, attention WBCALP 102.9 FM. If you would like to arrange a time for your own commentary, call WBCA at 617 708 3241 or email us at radio at bnntv.org.